Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning. Good to see all of you. It's finally fall. I don't know if you noticed that when you woke up. Yeah. It's October. So it just means that we're going to just start like singing Christmas carols and putting up Christmas decorations and forget about Thanksgiving pretty soon. That's what that means. So anyway. By the way, if you do, how many of you listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving? How many of you don't? My people! Yes! I didn't mean to create any division in the room this morning. But if you listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving, the Bible says you're wrong. You know all those verses about Thanksgiving in the Bible? Pilgrims? Anyway, uh, if you do have your Bible, speaking of which, you can turn to Luke chapter 6, or you can follow along on your device. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one beneath the chair in front of you or near you, and you can use that as well. We've been walking through uh, the Gospel of Luke, and um, from time to time I'm asked, why do you go through like books of the Bible? Because some, in some contexts and in some churches, they might follow a lectionary. Uh, other churches might pick like series to talk about, like you know, forgiveness or marriage or whatever it is. And um, one of the reasons we go through just like books of the Bible or large swaths of Scripture is because when you just start following a narrative, you're never really sure where it's going to take you. And you end up talking about things that you may otherwise not talk about. And so this is the reason why we're walking through the Gospel of Luke. We talk a lot about Jesus here unashamedly at Denver Community Church. And uh, the way that we get to know who he is is by continuing to study the Gospels that speak about him. So here's where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 43. It says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who builds a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. 
This is Jesus' conclusion to what's typically called the sermon or the teaching on the plain. And he, he starts his conclusion by talking about fruit. And he says, you don't pick good fruit from bad trees. You don't pick bad fruit from good trees. And, and he says, here's what fruit is. Fruit is the sum of what you do and what you say. It's a very tangible thing, not just tangible metaphor and image, but a very tangible thing. He says, you want to know what your fruit is? You want to know what your life produces in the world? You want to know what the result of you living in this world is? You want to know what your output, your expression is? That's your fruit. And he says, if it's good, the good things, the things that you say that are good, then you're a good tree. And if it's bad, if there's bad things, or there's bad practices, and there's bad words, bad words spoken, then you're bad. I mean, it's almost that simple. And Jesus says, whatever this fruit is, whether good or whether it's evil, it comes from your heart. And I think we need to pay attention to that word heart. And I say that because oftentimes we see heart as a metaphor or a picture of the inner world. And so there's the inner world of somebody, and then there's the outer world. The outer world is out there. It's what you can see. The inner world is what is between me and God. And somehow in a very subtle way, when we talk about the inner world and we talk about the outer world, we create a division between the two. And so if you've ever been around the church, you may have heard someone quote this verse that God spoke to Samuel the prophet. God looks at the outward appearance. Or I'm sorry, man, humans look at the outward appearance. <laughs> God looks at the heart. See, thank you for helping me along with my poor scripture memory. Man looks at the outward, God looks at the inward. And so if you grew up in and around the church, and let's say you wore clothing that people didn't agree with, or you were a guy and you had long hair, and people were like, well, men shouldn't have long hair, you would proudly be like, well, you're looking at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. It's like Christian verbal judo using verses. Which, by the way, totally exactly how the Bible's supposed to be used, to defend yourself and your actions. And so what we do is we say, well, there's this outward thing, that's what you see, there's this inward me that God sees. We create a division between the two. But here's what's fascinating about the word for heart in both the Hebrew language and the Greek language. Hebrew is the language that the, the Old Testament was originally written in. Greek is the language that the Christian scriptures and the New Testament were originally written in. And in Hebrew, the word for heart is the dominant metaphor, not to speak for the inward part of the person, but for the entire person, for the whole person. For the physical and the spiritual side put together, it speaks toward a holistic view of humanity. And in Greek, not just in the New Testament, but like in Homer and other poets and historians, you, the word for heart there also speaks toward the physical and spiritual realities of a person. It speaks toward the whole, the entire person. So when we say, well, God, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, and we create a division what that verse really is saying is we look at one aspect of a human being. God sees the whole thing, the inner and the outer. Because human beings are a whole. And I say it's important to pay attention to the word heart because when we create those divisions, seemingly maybe even insignificant, divisions in the human life are actually very unhealthy and can be very dangerous. And we see this because this is what Jesus starts pushing into when he begins talking about foundations. 
He says, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and not do what I, do, do what I say? Lord, by the way, is a term of uh, authority. In other words, why are you saying, yeah, I'll do what you say? Why are you saying, yeah, I think you're in charge, but you don't do what I say? That's division. And he says, he who hears my words and puts them into practice. Let me tell you what an undivided person is like. When there's a union, when there's a unity between what someone says and what someone says they believe and what they're doing, there's a union. And when there is a union, there is a foundation there, and no matter how strong the storm, they're going to be fine. Conversely, let me tell you about someone who is divided. Someone who says, Lord, Lord, and doesn't put my words into practice. They're like someone without a foundation, and when a storm comes, they're going to be wiped out. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can say whatever you want about me, but if you're not doing and living the way that I'm instructing you to live and doing the things I do, you're a hypocrite. It's not real. There's no foundation. And with this idea that Jesus is getting at, what he's really telling us is what matters most is what you do. What matters most is the life that you live. What matters most is what you are practicing out in the world. What matters most is the fruit that you bear because it comes from the heart. It comes from the whole person. It's not divided. M.A. Garcia, in reflecting on Luke chapter 6 in total, says this, the enormous frequency of the verb to do in Luke chapter 6 reveals the great importance given by Jesus to, pra- to the practice of his teachings. Jesus says what you do matters most. Now, depending on your religious pedigree, you might be like, oh, what we do matters? That feels a little bit like works. Are, are, you, saying, like, are you saying what we do matters most? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And you might be like, well, what about the whole, like, justify through faith alone? Yeah, sure, let's talk about that. Or some of you might be like, well, Ephesians chapter 2, it's right there in black and white. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. Yes, and if you're thinking of those verses in your head, let me point out that one of the things that I love, said sarcastically, about the church is how we take a group of verses or one verse or half a verse or two verses and pull them out of context and build a theology around it and ignore the other verses. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God lest anyone should boast. For, Paul continues, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Hmm, that kind of changes things, doesn't it? See, the problem often is when we come to the Bible, especially if you're more Protestant in your tradition, the Protestants didn't want to talk about works at all because of what they saw the Catholic Church doing. So in a typical human response, they overreacted and swung the pendulum too far. Some of you are like, is he bad-mouthing the Reformation fathers? Yeah, kind of. Just in their tradition, you know. I mean, Protestant protest is in our name. I'm protesting against the Reformation. They said we should always be reforming, so I'm just doing what they say. See, what they said is they wanted to get rid of any notion of works, and so they just beat the whole thing down. 
And they were also living through something called the Enlightenment, in which it was believed that human beings are the measure of all things. So if we can sort it out, if we can figure it out, if we can think it through, if we can explain it, then it's real. And if we can't, then it's not real. And what began to evolve in human consciousness, particularly in the Western world, is that faith and beliefs are the same thing. And so we have phrases like defending the faith, which is a very intellectual enterprise where you're going to intellectually defend or enter into an argument with somebody else about why you believe what you believe. And beliefs, well, for many Christians, beliefs are like, well, beliefs about the right things. And you're sitting here thinking to yourself, well, Michael, what are the right things? Well, I don't know. Because depending on who you speak with within the big, broad stream of the Christian tradition, there's a lot of right things that you need to believe. And if you don't believe those right things, well, then you will not spend eternity with God. So somehow we've made heaven about believing the right things. And so it's like we come back to Ephesians chapter 2, and it's for by grace have you been saved through believing the right things. It is a gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. You're like, well, that... That doesn't seem to make sense. For by grace you've been saved through believing the right things? That feels a bit off. But if we're honest, this is how we read much of the Christian scriptures. And what's fascinating is that one of the things that you'll see that runs like a chord through the Christian scriptures, we see it in the words of Jesus in chapter, Luke chapter 6, is that what matters is doing the right things. What matters is doing what Jesus said. And somehow we've separated ourselves from that. And so we have a verse like in John chapter 13 where Jesus says this to his disciples. This is about doing. A new command I give you. Love one another. That's a verb. Go in love. Do this. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will, you, will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But when we make beliefs about believing the right things, about mental assent to some propositional truths, we begin to read the Bible this way. A new command I give you, quiz one another on doctrine. As I quizzed you, so you must quiz one another. By this will everyone know, will ever, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you quiz one another. 1 Corinthians 13, some of you are like, oh yeah, I heard that at a wedding 17 times. A new, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, speaking of this possession, this practice. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. We come to it and we're like, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but do not have the correct theory of atonement, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. What about Paul's statement in Galatians chapter 5 where he says this, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts, the one thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. This is about doing Somehow we come to it and we figure out and probably means this. The only thing that counts is expressing itself, is faith expressing itself through the correct statement of belief on your church's website. Have you ever noticed, I don't know, like, I mean, I'm in the industry, so I do look at other churches' websites, and they always have, like, statement of belief. And people will click through that and be like, okay, they believe everything I believe, and so we've mentally ascended to the same propositional truths, I can probably go there. Really? That's... That's what we're most interested in? Let's keep going. James writes this to the church. He says, Religion that, our God, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, 
to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Again, this is about doing, looking after, caring, keeping yourself from. We might come to it and think this. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to have the right concept of spiritual authority in the church. By the way, the right concept is, I'm in charge. That feels a little different, doesn't it? Uh, let's keep going. First John chapter 4. Let us love one another. This is again about doing. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Maybe we would read it like this. Let us cling to religious dogma, for religious dogma comes from God. Everyone who clings to religious dogma has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not cling to dogma does not know God because God is religious dogma. Do you see how when we substitute mental assent to static propositional truths and belief statements that we begin to gut the entire Christian scriptures because it's no longer about doing? But this is roundly what has been taught in many places. And I wonder, is this why there are so many Christians who can believe all the right things, meaning they can mentally ascend a static propositional truths, they can even defend it really well. They can believe the right things, but they can still live such unloving and mean-spirited lives. I mean, it's not unusual. Like, it's not unusual for people to talk about the way Christians are, right? Am I right? Okay, thank you. Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, then you have your hands over your ears. Just try hanging out with me every once in a while. You meet someone new, and one of the most common questions ever asked in the United States is, so what do you do for work? And every time it comes up, I just think, I just want to make something up. I'm going to be like, I'm an illustrator for children's books. I like rabbits. You know, like, I don't know, because that would be easier. Sometimes I'm like, I work for the IRS. Just because that would be you, I say, well, I'm a pastor. And it gets really interesting really quick. A few weeks ago, I was out with some friends, and there was this woman who was just like the coolest human being any of us had ever seen. And if you're like, well, what does that look like? Just close your eyes and imagine the coolest human being you've ever seen, and it was her. Turns out she's a fashion consultant from San Francisco. And we know this because one of our friends is like, I'm just going to go tell her she's the coolest person I've ever seen. So she starts talking to her, and then she brings her over to us, and we're like, seriously, the whole thing, just it's, it's working. So we start talking, and then we find out she's been in fashion her whole life. She was a designer for a long time. Now she's a private consultant for wealthy people who want to figure out how to dress. And she's sharing all about her life and how she told her husband, I wanted an open marriage. And then I realized I didn't want an open marriage. I just wanted another love, and so I divorced them. And now I'm experiencing this incredible freedom and figuring out what real love feels like, going on and on and on and on. And then she's like, so anyway, what do you guys do? I'm like. <laughs> so my friend says, I'm in real estate. And she's like, oh, great. And she's asked her, like, what do you sell residential this? What has the market been like? And she's my other friend. What do you do? He's like, oh, I work for a retail company. And oh, and I'm going through the whole thing. And she comes to me. And what do you do? And I was like, I'm a pastor. And she's like, and what do you do? <laughs> you just didn't have to say anything. Why do people do that? Because they know, let's just be honest. Christians can say that we believe all the right things. But man, we can still just be awful to one another, can't we? I mean, just, just look at bumper stickers, Christian bumper stickers. Is there anything worse? <laughs> I mean, man, do those just sow a little bit of discord, just a little bit of seed. You know what I mean? 
It, it just it doesn't work. Dallas Willard, who was an unbelievable mind in heart, he was actually in the philosophy department at the University of Southern California. He gave a lecture years ago, and he was quoting a president of a Christian university. And here's what he said. A leader of a Christian organization, as a leader of a Christian organization, I feel the brunt of just this kind of meanness in the Christian community. A mean-spirited suspicion and judgment that mirrors the broader culture. Every Christian leader I know feels it. It is difficult to be a Christian in a secular world, but sometimes it is more difficult to be a leader in Christian circles. There, too, you can be vilified for just the slightest move that is displeasing to someone. I heard him say that, and it broke my heart into a million pieces. Because I don't know one pastor or one Christian leader who would disagree with that statement. And that includes me. And by the way, I'm sure some of you are like, well, tell us some stories. Like, what's happened? I will not use a platform that I've been entrusted with to platform hate and meanness and unloving attitudes. But I'll tell you this. There's things out there like Twitter. It's on your computer and phone. Uh, there's emails. And man, you put someone in front of a screen and keyboard courage just comes running out, running out, doesn't it? You can say anything you want because you're bold and convicted and a little bit cowardly because you won't say it to my face. Let's just be honest. There's things like comments, getting tagged in comments, getting anonymous letters. Just mean. Oh, and by the way, we're a church that follows Jesus who is the face of God who is love. Hmm, interesting. So we say, Lord, Lord, but we don't put his words into practice. We don't do what he says to do. Okay, I got it. Very good. Willard's words break my heart because I know firsthand that what he's saying, what this Christian college professor is saying, is absolutely true. We can say we believe it, but do we practice it? Now, some of you are here, and maybe you're more theologically minded, and you're like, you still haven't really settled the whole thing about like beliefs and justification through faith alone, and like you kind of left that hanging out there a little bit. So let me get back to that. You see, at this point, you might be sitting there going, I, I hear what you're saying, but man, you're, you're really close to the edge. Like, I get what you're saying, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. A very overused proverb. You know what? I've heard this kind of thing before. This is where it starts. But you are on a slippery slope, to which I say, and I'm wearing skis. <laughs> um, some people get that at different levels. But this is where it all begins. It's downhill from here. Beliefs are important. Ah, yes, beliefs are important. On that we agree, maybe, depending on what we mean by beliefs. Because oftentimes we come to these verses and we hear Jesus talk about saying, Lord, Lord, not putting in the practice. And we're like, okay, you know what? You say you believe this and you're acting like this. And what you need to do is you need to get your actions in line with your beliefs. The problem with that is we're still centering beliefs. We're still saying beliefs, mental assent to certain things. That's what's most important. And if we live in a way where our actions betray those things, now we have a problem. But let me be clear about what Jesus may mean here. 
Jesus is not here saying, listen, get your actions in line with the beliefs. It's not saying our actions betray our beliefs. It's not saying the way that we live doesn't live up to our set of beliefs. It's not saying that the things we do somehow are at odds with our beliefs. What it's saying is that our attitudes, our actions, the way we live our life, the way that we express our faith, that is what we believe. Our actions are our beliefs. They don't betray them. They are, in fact, what we believe. And I'll tell you what, I really wish that that wasn't true. Not because I'm afraid of what you're going to say to me, but because when I look at my own life, I go, man, that's a brutal truth. Like, I'd love to stand up here and tell you, you know what, if you followed me around, you would see a life of love and grace and compassion and mercy. I just hug people because I love hugs and I love people. You'd be like, oh my gosh, I will go anywhere with you. And then we're on I-25, and you're like, well, I'm sorry, Oklahoma. The left lane's for passing in the rest of the world. You know, like, whatever. <laughs> I need one clap for that. My people. Like, I'm telling you, yes. By the way, why do you clap when I say that and still drive in the left lane? That's a paraphrase of Jesus, just an FYI. I look at my life, and I go, wow. I, I think about the ways in which I've hurt people with my words. I think about the way that I've hurt people with my actions. I think about the sins of omission. I know what to do, but you know what? If I don't do it, no one's really going to know or hold me accountable to it. You know how those ones are, right? The sins of selfishness. I look at my life and I'm confronted with what I believe. And I tell you what, I really wish it wasn't true because I can talk a really good game. I can talk a lot of people in theological circles. I can wax poetic about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But when I look at my life, I realize, oh, yeah, I can say that. But what I believe, that's troubling. Which, of course, raises the question, what do you believe? What do we believe? What do I believe? What do you believe? Maybe I should ask, what do you do? You see, one of the things about church that I find very interesting is this. It's like the easiest place to hide. We can hide in plain sight. There's a great story about this German smuggler who used to smuggle things across the border when Germany was between East and West Germany. And the guards got wise to it. And so every day he would come and he'd have a wheelbarrow full of all this trash and they would stop him and they would search him. They'd search his body, search the wheelbarrow and then he would just keep going. And then he'd cross back the border at night. Next day, same thing. Wheelbarrow full of stuff. They'd stop him, search him, nothing. This went on for years and they never caught him once. Well, after the wall fell, one of the old German guards was in a bar and he looked across and he saw the guy who used to bring wheelbarrows across the border. And he walked over to him and was like, all right, man, war's over. You got to tell me. We know you were smuggling something. What were you smuggling? And he said, wheelbarrows. <laughs> Hidden in plain sight. Just brutally obvious. That's how church is, isn't it? 
Like we think all the evil takes place like in black furtive masses of the really dark and evil people. Oh, no, 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 no. It is very easy for evil to root itself and grow in the bright lights and the swirling organ praise music as we sing to Jesus. Because we can say, well, I believe. But we may not do what he says. Here at DCC, one of the things I always appreciate is how many people nod. I call it the Midwest Amen. <laughs> God is good. Mm. Mm. Yeah. If you really get going, like your shoulders get into it, it's really, I mean, people are like, do you get feedback at DCC? I'm like, it's all very physical, but it's there. Can't hear it on the podcast, but I'm telling you, people are really into it. Lots of nods. But what I find interesting is some of the things we talk about here that get nods. Like we talk a lot about justice, restorative justice. In other words, when things are as they should be, and by God's grace, things being one day as God wants them. Mm, lots of nods on that one. Shoulders activated. And so we go home and we put like a Black Lives Matter poster on our front yard. Okay, what are you actually doing? What can I see you doing to pursue greater racial equity and to heal the uh, racial sin that is soaked in this country's fabric? Like, are you doing anything? And, and don't tell me like, well, I tweet. Oh, good Lord. President Obama said it well. He said, listen, tweeting about a word that somebody used to feel good about yourself is not activism and doesn't lead to real, any real change. Are you doing something? Because if you're not, by the way, then don't tell me you care about justice. Don't say justice, justice, and not work for it, to paraphrase Jesus. What about uh, generosity? We talk a lot about that here. Generosity. Oh, yeah, generosity. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you nod. I'll take that as a, I agree. You want to show me your bank account? Let's just get real. You want to talk about how you're volunteering, spending your time, offering yourself, giving of yourself, giving your time, giving your resources? Don't nod in assent to generosity and be someone that doesn't give anything. That's really kind of, I think, what Jesus was saying. What about some of Jesus' teachings in Luke chapter 6? He says, do good to your enemies. Do good to your enemies. When there's somebody whose picture pops up or somebody who walks in your office at work and there's that like, feeling inside of you of like, Ugh. you know what I'm talking about? Of course, you're like, no, I can't say I do because that means that I might believe right? exactly. We all have people that really, really bug the living crap out of us, don't we? Enemies feels like a very wartime analogy. What about the people you just like, if you heard like, oh, did you hear that Sarah got rear-ended and her car is totaled and she can't afford it so now she can't get to work and she's fired? You'd be like, yes, oh, it's terrible, right? That kind of enemy. Jesus says do good to those people. Oh, yeah, love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. But unless you're actively doing things to pursue a relationship, unless you're actually doing things to seek their good, don't say you believe in it. Jesus, by the way, in this same passage, talks about forgiveness. I could say, man, isn't it great that we're all forgiven by God? And I'm assuming I'd get a lot of nods. But if we're people who hold on to unforgiveness and bitterness, well, we don't really believe in that either. Maybe that's why Jesus said, like, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Because what he's saying is, you actually don't even really believe in the first part anyway. Now, I want to say, by the way, if you're here and someone is doing you harm, 
actively, you can forgive them and still not be in relationship with them. But forgiveness is still about liberating the other and liberating yourself. You see, I could ask, like, what do you believe? Well, what you believe, what I believe, it's, it's like inextricably tied up in what we do. It is what we do. And so if people were going to describe Denver Community Church and they would say, well, what do you believe? Well, what would they see us collectively doing? And what might they say? Are we going to bat a thousand? Of course not. But what would they say about us? What would we say about ourselves? Like, what if we were brutally honest and just came to a place of saying, you know what? Yeah, I don't believe in all of that. Or I believe in some of it, but not all of it. And the reason I can say that fearlessly is, A, it's just true. If you look at my life, I don't practice that. So I don't believe it. And B, I can be brutally honest because the thing that actually brings me to church is a guy named Jesus, and he talks about grace and mercy all the time, not as an excuse, but a way of being honest. And we need to be honest because every journey begins where you are, not where you wish you were. And if we're not real about who we are and what we believe and what we do, we're never going to experience the deep healing and growth that we're all invited into. So let's be brutally honest. And I wonder what if we were brutally honest? And what if we began to pursue healing and the goodness and the grace and the power and the mercy that's available to all of us and we began to be people whose lives express these deep-seated beliefs that look more and more like Jesus every day? I wonder what then, what would happen? The writer Klein Snodgrass talks about what would happen if we actually just listen to and put into practice the teachings of Jesus that we see in Luke chapter 6. And this is what he says. Imagine a world or a community where people do not abuse others verbally in anger, do not lust or violate marriage vows, always tell the truth, do not retaliate with violence, and love their enemies. All of us would want to live there. Living this way creates stability and peace. And I want to say this. What he describes there is not some far-out, outrageous, impossible vision. In the words of the poet and farmer and essayist Wendell Berry, that is no paradisal dream. Its hardship is its possibility. Let's pray together. God, we appreciate uh, that Jesus isn't one who's just always there to tell us everything's okay and we're going to be fine, but Jesus is one who gets into the thick of our lives and deeply, deeply challenges us. And we say thank you to that because we know that these challenging words come from a place of love and tenderness and mercy and compassion. A God who's continually pursuing us. And so I ask that you would just allow us to be honest about what we believe. And if we wonder what is it that we believe, that you would just allow us to really take a good hard look at what we do. And we ask that not so that we can be better or more inside your good graces. We ask that because well, we recognize that this is what the world needs as people who practice your kind of love, your kind of grace, your kind of mercy, your kind of justice in the world in which we live. And we pray and speak all of these things together in the strong name of Jesus and all my friends said.